the incomparable podcast number 83 march 2012 welcome back to the incomparable podcast i'm your host jason snow and tonight we're going to be talking about one of my very favorite uh books i guess you could say of all time it is the uh, now legendary dc comics alan moore and dave gibbons production of watchmen uh, first published in 1986 by DC Comics. It does not use any of the traditional DC superheroes. Instead, it's sort of a skewed version of originally some comic book heroes from a different comic book company that uh, DC acquired in an interesting kind of intellectual property transaction, which is ironic given what is happening with the Watchmen today, which is that DC is using their intellectual property to make prequels to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' seminal book, Watchmen. Uh, we will talk about that later on, but we're going to focus most of the, the podcast today on Watchmen itself, the original work from 1986. Joining me to discuss Watchmen, uh, famous, most the most applauded comic book, I think, of all time, probably, are Lisa Schmeiser. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for being here. Steve Lutz is also here. Hi, Steve. Howdy, Jason. Good to talk to you. Nice talking to you, too. Thanks for being here. And we have Ben Boychuk. Hi, Ben. Herm. <laughs> <laughs> Please do this entire podcast in a monotone. That, that, would, be, that would be something. And also joining us, our own... Um, Night Owl. I don't really know where I'm going with there. Tony Sindelar. Hi, Tony. Hi. All right. So Watchmen. Um, my, my wife likes to make fun of me and for many things, but about Watchmen, about my Watchmen obsession, I have, at last count, I think I have four copies of Watchmen in different forms. I've got the original issues, wow. the, uh, the trade paperback, the original trade paperback, a book club edition hardcover, Oh, of the, the original edition? no of the original trade paperback a, a book cover and then and then the absolute edition which uh came out a few years ago i did uh i was at the height of my comic book collecting uh period in 1986 when watchmen came out um and in fact i saw a promo for it in the newsletter from the comic book shop where i where i bought my comics and and as a result, I can actually say, and this is one of the very few times that I've been on the ground floor of something this notable, I bought Watchmen number one when it came out. Wow. So So I got to read it, um, I would say over 12 months, but as anybody who read the original issues knows, the 12th issue didn't come out after one month. You had to wait two months to get that final conclusion to the story. Um, so over 13 months, I read that story and then have read it, you know, in book form since then. And I thought I would start there, which is to ask you guys about what your kind of personal relationship with this, with this book is. Did you read it early on? Did you discover it later? Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of curious how you all came to, to read Watchmen. Lisa, why don't we start with you? I read the trade paperback in 1987 on a model UN school trip. Um, <clears throat> and- <laughs> No, <laughs> sorry, it's better. Um, I don't know how it could. <laughs> Gallantly enough, the, the 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 young men with whom I was um, on the Syria delegate delegation from Hollywood <laughs> didn't didn't want me to read it because they were afraid it would offend my delicate female sensibilities on account of you know the rape and the the dog murdering and other violence and mayhem and so on and so Do- forth. Dog murdering is number two for you. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that dog didn't do a lot to deserve anything else. Um, this is true. S- so 
it was I, I actually remember physically grabbing the book from from one of them and then running to the back of the, the school bus and sitting in the back of the bus and, and reading through it once and then having to stop and look out the window for a bit and then reading it again to make sure I had huh. understood what I just read. And then you demanded to be put on the uh, delegation from Antarctica. Was this event actually in Syria? It seems like kind of a long bus ride. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was in, I, we, we, I was living in Northern Virginia at the time. I think it was in Southern Virginia. And the school bus had a, what was it called? A governor? The school bus had a governor, so it couldn't go more than 55 mm. miles an hour. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Long bus ride. So two, two reads on a long bus ride. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it blew my mind because... It was like uh, it was unlike anything I had I had ever read. Yeah, yeah, and we'll, uh, so so we'll come back to that. But uh, moving on to Steve, what what about you? Well, <clears throat> I was not a big comic book guy as a kid, but I was I was fairly well versed in some stuff like uh, Amazing Spider Man and Fantastic Four. Um, I think I had a few Howard the Duck issues, and uh, God help me, Archie Comics. Um, but I remember back in '86. My nerdy friends were all talking about uh, about Watchmen and how awesome this character, mainly this character Rorschach, was. And so uh, I figured, well, what the hell? There was a comic book store just down the street from the school, so I I I, uh, I stopped in one day and I picked up issues two and three, which were the ones that were out at the time. So I was in fact in on the ground floor, or at least you know halfway between. Right, the mezzanine. You were in on the mezzanine of Watchmen. Yes, mezzanine. That's right. Uh, where I stopped in for some bacon martinis before proceeding. Yes. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I picked up two and three and uh, and was enthralled. And um, unfortunately, one, issue one, was already pretty much sold out everywhere. Although I say everywhere, but I really had no idea since there was no internet back in those heady days. And I so really had no no means of knowing whether you could find it anywhere else. Um, but I, So I didn't get hold of that until several months later, at which point it, it ended up costing me something like nine bucks, which was unheard of at the time. Um, but I was pretty jazzed to get it. And, uh, and to this day, Watchmen is the, the one and only thing. Well, technically the only, only 12 things that I have ever bagged and boarded. Wow. So, so you were, uh, you were hooked at that point and also got all the next issues as, as they came out. I did. Uh, and, and I suffered along with you waiting for, uh, for issue 12. That last issue. Oh man. Weren't there, weren't the delays before 11 or 10 as well? No, I don't think so. I, I, mm. my recollection is that, and I actually, at this point I, I lived in a town without a comic shop. So I actually got my comics mail order and wow. I got them in a bundle once a month and there was a watchman in there every month. And then that last month with that big cliffhanger, there was no watchman in the box. Oh, the pain. Like, and there was no internet for me to go on and register my disapproval back then, <laughs> kids. That that there used to be, you just sort of silently raged in your room about what the simpler time. And you looked, you looked actually. I looked at the receipt, and the receipt, which is handwritten with the marks of like what comics you got, and under Watchmen, it said, it, "I believe somebody had written in pen delay." And I was like, uh, no! Shaking your fist feebly in your room. The next month, the the issue was there, so it wasn't so bad. Uh, Tony, what about you? Um, I first read Watchmen as a, a young college student, probably around the year 2000. Um, and this was, I had read basically kids comics before that as, you know, many years ago. So I, you know, I'd read like the Archie Ninja Turtles and the Batman comics based off the Batman cartoon series and then taken kind of a, a big break from comics. And a, and a good friend of mine who was basically uh, majoring in comic bookery 
um, for for college. Comic bookery? <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting school. This was one of those make-your-own-majors, wasn't it? Yes, I, I did one of those <laughs> as well. So this friend, you know, put put a, a copy of the, the collected trades in, in my hand and said, you know, I have to read this. Um, and I did. I read it in basically in one sitting, stayed up all night reading it. And that basically kind of uh, relaunched my interest in comics, which has, you know, taken over a large chunk of my life since then. Uh, at least a, a large chunk of my possessions by weight, um, having just moved my comic collection. And uh, I went on from that and spent, you know, uh, that was, that was ba- the, the start of a summer. And I spent basically all of my disposable income for the rest of the summer on an Im- immense number of comics that was all kind of kicked off by uh, by reading Watchmen and being totally sucked into it. I like the idea of, of calculating your worldly possessions by weight. Well, I just moved, so... Well, no, I know, I know, that would be illogical, but I just like that idea of, in general, it's like, yeah, you know, that that, that thing that I like, it's, it, there's too much of it by weight. I mean, I have, you know, I have a lot of board games and a lot of DVDs, but, but compared to, like, one box of comic books. Oh, yeah. No, uh, they're heavy. Yeah. Yeah. They're heavy. All right, so you, you discovered the trade paperback. Yeah, uh, I was... You know, I, a younger age than some people, I guess. And it reintroduced you to comics, which is interesting yeah. because um, for me, and this says something about the about the the mid to late '80s comic book scene, and also and also honestly something about being a 16 year old when and reading this at 16 years old, um, when your brain is developing and you're seeing patterns and you you're seeing complexities that maybe you didn't see before. That I read Watchmen and thought, well, what's the point? And stopped and actually canceled my comic book subscription from the little mail order people and stopped reading comics for like 15 years because <laughs> all of the other comics seemed so ridiculously – I was already somewhat disillusioned by those kind of soap opera plots of these ongoing comics. And I read this thing that tells a complete story and has all of these layers. And the other comics, I, I just looked at them and 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 thought, bah. You know, I give up. And I, and I literally stopped. So it started you on the path and it stopped me. Watchmen, there's a lot of symmetry in it. You know, one person's beginning is another person's end. It is. It's symmetry. Amazing. So, Ben, we didn't get to you. What was your uh, entree into the world of Watchmen? Well, very similar story to yours. Um, in 1986, uh, bought the monthly in on the ground floor. In fact, somewhere in my garage, I think, or, or well, somewhere, I have some promo posters um, of the series that I mean the, that came out before uh, even the the issues hit the hit the stands, and so yeah, every uh, every month, uh, well every week, you know, because I was I was so into comics uh, at that time, I would uh, dutifully make the trip to Fantasy Kingdom on Olive Avenue in Burbank, and um, and so I still have you know I still have the original series uh, bagged and boarded. Uh, I've got a battered uh, trade paperback somewhere, and then uh, whenever the Absolute Edition came out, uh, my wife gave me that for for Christmas that particular year. So um, that's a good gift. So yeah, that's a great gift. Uh, I got the I got uh, the Dark Knight Absolute Dark Knight the same the same year. Right, and that was a big that was a big time for for comics. So so um, when. And and it's it's interesting, Tony, as as somebody who's younger than the rest of us on this panel, a little bit, a little bit, um, a scoosh, the just a little, just a little, just a couple, a respectable you know, amount, like a decade, um, snapper, yeah, damn kids. The the um when I when I talk about being sort of disillusioned and why I'm interested in that symmetry, as you point out, um. I, I think when some people – I was talking to some people about Watchmen and, and I think we even had a conversation on our, our little mailing list about this that 
from the perspective of today, uh, I think people who haven't been exposed to Watchmen, there, there's a possibility that they look at it and they say, I don't get what it, what it's, what the big deal is. Well, I've had that conversation with people. Right. And, and I, I think that um, I can totally see that. It, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it's a great work that still works really well. But if you're especially well-versed in, in comics or even if you've just seen a lot of comic book themed movies now you this is one of those great examples of you know after something is so influential that everybody everything that's done after it is like it it doesn't seem that big a deal unless you when you look at it unless you realize that it was sort of the first or one of the first to do what it did as as a comic book reader in 1986 and 1987 i looked at it and my my reaction literally was what's the point with all these other comic books because they're so they just they pale in comparison and today's comics uh, you know, there's still lots of bad comics and lots of good comics. But one thing that I, I will say, because I have started reading comics again in the last few years, is um, they they don't – the things that Watchmen taught me were awful about all the other comics. Uh, that stuff has been corrected in many places, in many ways, because of the influence of Watchmen. So I actually think that is over, – over time, it ended up having a positive impact. But at, at that point, it, it was so good that I felt like, you know, drop the mic and walk away. <laughs> it's just like, you know, but but comics have, have – I mean, Watchmen has been influential. So I can understand how people, young whipp- whippersnappers might look at it and be like, eh, yeah, it's so – it's a dark kind of story that toys with the, the archetypes of comic book superheroes. Doesn't every comic do that? And the answer is in 1986? No, absolutely not. It didn't happen that way. I think if you're going to reread Watchmen and understand why it was such a big deal, and and this would apply to people who who didn't read it the first time in 1986 and who have benefited from a post-Watchmen world, read Understanding Comics first by Scott McCloud because he has a lot of really good and interesting things to say about all of the decisions that go into how comics are composed from page layout to panel size, to panel layout, to composition, to the way the words and the images complement each other. And one of the things that Alan Moore does throughout this book, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons is um, they play with the, 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 I don't, I don't think timeless is the right word. They play with the quality of nonlinear time that comics can amplify by, by pointing out there's that whole thing where, um, What's his face? The guy with the blue and had a massive penis on screen. Um, Dr. Manhattan. That's it. Billy Billy Crudup? (laughs) Um, Him. (laughs) It's interesting the things you remember. I know. This is after 16 ounces of wine, folks. Um, There's the the segment where he takes her to Mars and um, he's trying to explain to her feeble female earth brain how he doesn't exactly live at one fixed point in time going forward and going back. He, he kind of fixes his consciousness to whatever interests him. And, and for him, time is just another dimension. And um, there's one point where he actually explicitly says, there is no future. There is no past. Do you see? And that panel is like right in the middle of the page, surrounded by all the rest. And it's just a really nice back and forth interplay where, where um, Givens and Moore are reminding you that, from your omniscient perspective as the reader, there is no future, there is no past, because you can see things unfolding in both directions on the page. This And, and it, it amplifies the point that they're trying to make in the narrative. And this happens repeatedly through the whole the whole um, text, where all, the, all they do is, is when they say something, the images and the composition repeatedly underline it, and, and you just get this magnificent feedback loop. And it's something I didn't really fully appreciate until after I read Understanding Comics, and began to understand that everything from gutter size to panel size affects the sentences that that 
are going in captions or, or coming out of people's mouths. Now, one of the one of the things about Watchmen that I love is that it, it does bear scrutiny, and you can reread it. Every time I reread it, I notice something I didn't notice mm-hmm. before. Every single time. And that may just be because I'm not particularly perceptive as a human being, but be that as it may. <laughs> I think there's a lot there. One thing pops out, and, and one of the things is you can appreciate the plot, and you can appreciate the... Uh, twists of the plot and the interesting take on superhero archetypes, right? But below that level, there's like there's the fearful symmetry issue where all the panels, front to back, back to front, are actually symmetric in in their layout, and there's a spread in the center, which is just, I mean, super Mind comic blowing. book nerdy, and yet it's it's amazing. And um, just the way that the panels, these gr- the grid layout that's used, the way the way that works, um, Tor.com is doing um, what they're calling the Great Alan Moore reread, and uh, they've posted as of this recording a couple of of parts of their. I think they're going to do four part Watchmen as a part of this, and they they did the anatomy lesson and the the whole run of. Swan thing and they did miracle man and they're they're going through basically the canon of alan moore every week on tour.com and um something that struck me about what they wrote about watchmen is um they talked about the density of it and they said that um they counted in one issue 196 panels of watchmen in issue one there are 196 panels and an average issue of a comic book from 2012 70 so so the 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 compression the the uh sheer density of of watchmen is also um amazing and kind of mind-blowing compared to today so you've got all of these elements right you, that you notice when you reread it that, that it's not just the characters and the plot but every time they're they're the details that that dave gibbons leaves everywhere like behind at the very corner of some small panel somewhere there is a detail that's relevant it's amazing i, I right th- 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 and so so just you can go as deep down into the nerdiness as 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 you want and you will find stuff and that that's actually one of the things that i love about it is that this isn't just like a a story that they told it's a whole world that's been invented and infused in like every corner of every panel right and that was one of the things that i, I most loved about watchmen too reading it uh, one issue at a time was that each 26 page or so issue took like five days to really read mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. me because I'd sit there and I'd, I'd examine every single panel looking for the recurring motifs and the, oh, yeah. and the triangles and the clocks and the watches. And then, uh, you know, I'd go back and read, uh, you know, issues when I got issue four or five, I'd go back and read one through three again, oh, yeah. and pour over them with the same amount of time, trying to find new, uh, new linkages between, you know, the motifs and the, and, uh, you know, try to find clues to the, the, the overriding story. I did that almost every time. You know, you get issue two and you read one and two. You get issue three and you read one and two and three. <laughs> that was the great the great advantage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it really it highlights, especially rereading um, the the trade paperback over the weekend. It really highlights how much you lose by not having that one month to sort of stew. Uh, over you know what happened in the last issue because it, it was it, such sweet uh, agony to 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 go over and over the the issue and uh, try and figure out what was going on and anticipate what was coming in the next you know month or two months. I imagine it's like people who read uh, Dickens serialized in the newspaper when it came out mm-hmm. that Dickens you know Dickens novels were 
meant to be cliffhangered and they were really more like what we would think of almost like a TV show today where there'd be an installment and then there'd be a cliffhanger and you'd have to think about it. This is why you should never read them as liter- in, a, in a literature class the way that they're typically taught. You should be, you, you should stretch them out. This is, and, and this is, I mean, I always thought about Dickens when I was watching Lost because I thought, you know, Lost had, had its faults, but but I think that they got beaten up for frustrating the, the, the um, viewer but that was what it was all about is there's a chapter break and then you have to wait a week. And in a book or a DVD set on, you know, where you've got all the episodes uh, together is you can just go at your own pace. And at a TV show by installment, you can't. And the, a Dickens novel in the newspaper, you couldn't. And Watchmen, there is something to be said for that. The Watchmen was not built as a book. It was built as 12 discrete elements with time separating them so you could actually consider what you just saw. That said, it does hang as a book, which is more than you can say for a lot of trades when a series is collected in narrative arcs. I mean, this this works on two different levels where I would have liked to have had the chance to read it issue by issue. But having had a completely different experience from you guys and having read it in one big gulp and then reread it in one big gulp. Well, it sounds like you had enough time on this trip. You could have taken a week between each <laughs> each chapter. I had to write my position papers for first committee. Syria took disarmament very seriously. <laughs> But uh, it does ha- it does also hang together as a book, especially with the interstitials, because the interstitials add some depth to yeah, the, the narrative. Yeah, ba- the back matter helps a lot. Yeah. The, that, oh, that, my God. The, the back matter, not only is it great on its own, but it is a break between the chapters. <laughs> and a lot of comic book collections, you know, you could, you could almost – in fact, some cases I think they do. You could just drop out the breaks and it's just one story and it may even be plotted that way. In Watchmen, there is a, there is a time to reflect when you're reading through – you know, these book excerpts and files and other crazy stuff that's just, again, filling in the back, this rich backstory of this world. You wouldn't know as much about Adrian Veidt without it. Right. Mm-hmm. And even with the back matter, you couldn't get rid of, you couldn't get, you couldn't uh, eliminate that completely in Watchmen because you would miss out on the, on the covers, which are just fantastic and panels in their own right. And of course, the, uh, the gradually dripping blood onto the clock on the back, which is rife with symbolism as well. So they couldn't really eliminate it altogether, no matter what. Right, and those, and those. I mean, they did keep those. So when you go through the trade, they've they've got them. Um, but it was that was it was a whole package. It was quite a thing to read it in the in the issue by issue format, no doubt about it. So so um, I think that somebody touched on this earlier. It, it is interesting that the most popular character in this, uh, and, and in some ways the most conventional and heroic. In, a, in that he's a crime fighter and he's actually trying to solve the murder that caps off this story is a completely insane person, <laughs> is a psychopath. And he's not only popular, but right, he's actually kind of the one who's being a hero. And the only reason he's still a hero is because he's a lunatic, which is interesting. You know, you guys have thoughts about about Rorschach other than that he is crazy? I guess I, I don't have any friends that would describe him as really cool, but... I may travel in the wrong crowds. No, that or the right crowd. But he's popular. He makes an easy Halloween costume. Not that hard to draw either. If you can draw a hat, you're covered. So this is a commentary on on comic book superheroes. That on one level, that is really what this is about. Is sort of like trying trying to place comic book superhero ideas in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so you've got you've got Rorschach who is who is crazy and really didn't become an effective superhero until he was completely crazy. And we see why he is that way. Uh, and you've got the uh, the creation of the Minutemen and this attempt to create the 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 crime, basically the crime busters that um, 
fails miserably and they burn and the comedian burns up the map and and the, the the superheroes are outlawed and i mean that's one of the interesting things about this is that is that this is taking this genre that is meant for you know superheroes are the are, are the prime genre in for comics in our world, although not in the world of the Watchmen, which is also funny. It's pirates. But um, this Watchmen details them as just being a completely like failed and messed up and just a, just a completely wreck of an idea of a concept that a human being would be a hero. Well, didn't Moore intend Rorschach to be – he didn't intend him to be the hero of the piece. He intended him to be, I've read, um, sort of the villain of the piece in some ways. Um, and and it certainly he 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 writes Rorschach in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be sympathetic if you're of a particular mindset. This is a guy who you know in the in the first issue says you know he's, he's you know he's when he's discoursing on uh, you know on the on the blood and the filth uh, you know of the, the running through the streets and like like Coke and little green bottles. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Um, he contrasts, you know, the the you know the 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 men who who run the world in in 1985 versus good men like his father, who he never knew, right? And Harry Truman, um, who dropped the A bomb on Japan, right? And you know, this is a guy who, um, you know, throughout uh, throughout the piece is is you know no compromise, not even in the face of Armageddon, right? Not not a hero. But but yet he does heroic things. And more, I think, wants you to say, yeah, that's ridiculous. And yet everybody – well, not everybody, but, but you know, it's funny that, yeah, every, uh, he, was the, he was the one character that, that a lot of folks really latched on to. Uh, and the comedian who was also kind of a bad guy. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Well, this is kind of. Kind of? <laughs> uh, yeah, he, oh, he's a bad guy and yet at the same time he, he does get – horribly murdered and and i i work up a little bit of sympathy for him when he's when he's uh sitting on the edge of moloch's bed drunk and crying <laughs> about how it how clutching his madonna figurine oh e- my god even he <laughs> even he is horrified by what he has stumbled upon right i mean he, it's hard to it's hard for the comedian not to be a little he's a little you're a little sympathetic it's like wow even this guy is messed up that that's that it must be bad i want to well let me pose this because i as i was rereading it you know, there's um, I I can't remember now if it was it issue f- it may have been issue five or or issue four uh, where where Doctor Manhattan is is recall you know is is remembering and 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 giving his assessment of the comedian and what he says is something to the effect of you know Blake saw you know the horrors of the 20th century and he just didn't care and he seemed to understand it best of all i mean what what he's what 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 this godlike character is saying about the comedian is uh you know of of this motley crew of of characters that populate this this universe in watchmen um maybe the comedian understood it best of all and there's that line about uh what happened to the american dream and the comedian says it came true you're looking at it <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I mean this is this is one of the great things about it is that you've got Rorschach, who's not intended to be a hero, but but the point is that he he does some typically heroic things, and that he's trying to solve the crime, and and right? he, he kind of has his act together in a, in a way that the other characters clearly don't, because the other characters are you know are kind of losers or sellouts, and you know he's got that really strong way that he's introduced with the 
you know, there's like four pages in a row with him kind of investigating the comedian's um, apartment. He's got a and grappling there's, hook. There's, he's got a grappling hook and there's him. St- and I mean, it's, it's a kind of neat introduction. There's no dialogue for four pages. It's not him like narrating his, his exploration. We just see him kind of, you know, moving through the apartment and searching places. Although he does say Herm at least once. I, he grunts and there's some other kind of, you know, but he's not like, you know, he, he's not required to narrate what he's doing to, uh, to the audience or anything. Um, and then, you know, the other characters are kind of introduced as, as you know, flabby losers or, or other kind of, you know, misfits. Um, so even if he is basically crazy and um, he at least kind of seems to have at least his professional act more together than they do, I guess. Well, and he has a lot going for him in the end, I think, in that he's the only one that's 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 willing not to put up with the madness that Veidt has. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's he's the only one willing to to walk away from Amelis in a sense, or at least drag the rest of the world away from Amelis with him. So, so Ben, here here's what that line is. Um, Blake is interesting. I've never met someone. I've never met anyone so deliberately amoral. He suits the climate here in Vietnam, the madness, the pointless butchery. As I come to understand Vietnam and what it implies about the human condition, I also realize that few humans will uh, will permit themselves such an understanding. Blake's different. He understands perfectly, and he doesn't care. Right. Well, that goes into Moore's whole thesis that anybody who gets into this business is, is going to be a little cracked, or anybody who gets into this business effectively. Well, you see it... Yep. Um, in the original incarnation where you had uh, hooded justice who, who gets killed after a piece of rough trade. And um, the original, the original silk specter is certainly not a model of well-adjusted anything. Right. Well, and, um, and then there's the, the more, you know, uh, personal, you know, matter of Dan Dryberg has, has hung up his costume and he, you know, he's, and he's the Batman analog. Right. And, and he, he's got the amazing garage full of stuff that's gathering dust and he's, he's imp, and he's impotent until he puts on the costume and fights crime, at which point he is virile. What I think is interesting about both Night Owl 1 and 2 is Night Owl 1 gets brutally murdered. You know, yes. he's just, he, 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 writes this me- he writes this memoir, you know, that we see under the hood. And it, it opens with, it, it opens with a, a, it's supposed to open with a tragic anecdote. And he has to borrow from one that, that really is tragic and humiliating for somebody else. And this is a guy who had kind of a middling to okay. He happened to ride. He happened to ride a wave. He was like the, he was like the Yahoo.com of the superheroes. <laughs> and you know he gets out just in time. He has a decent retirement until he's beaten to death. You know, and Dry- <laughs> all things considered, you know, and and Dryberg picks it up, and he's obviously just a rich kid who's looking for some kind of purpose or meaning. And the the, the whole character. Both incarnations seem to be seeking for something they're never going to quite attain, and they tell themselves a lot of self self-justifying delusions to to keep putting on the hood, or to keep making their little their little uh, their little ships, or or to to write their little memoir. And they they really dance around the issue of why they did it. It's like you said, it, there's there's the whole impotence issue, and uh, I think you're supposed to, or I came away from it. I've always come away from it just just being both disgusted and 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 sorry for those for for, for both incarnations of Night Owl. You know, there's almost nothing to recommend them as people, which is ironic because he ends up with the girl. <laughs> well, well, Dryberg is trying. I mean, he hangs he hangs it up because it's been outlawed, and and you can see exactly. that he ha- he really did have nothing else in his life. <laughs> yeah, right. This is he's filling a f- fulfilling a need. He's filling a hole by by having this this superhero life, and so he jumps back in it at at, at the end. And yes, he does get the girl. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice? It's, it's, it strikes me as a marriage of convenience. Hmm. Actually, though, uh, 
Hollis Mason, is he not the only character in either the Minutemen or the, uh, you know, what would have been the Crime Busters who got into it exclusively because he wanted to fight crime and not because he had some perversity or... Uh, yeah, he didn't have any kinks, yeah. if that's what you're asking. He didn't have any kinks. So far as we know. Yeah, so far as we know. Yeah, everybody's ruffling through their copies. It's, it's a check. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> And I think I think and I think the fact that um, he I think the fact that his life ends the way it does is supposed to tell you that that you know even that this is not a business for norm, for normal or well adjusted people at all. Um, yeah, a lot of good it does you. <laughs> so so um, so uh, want to maybe talk about uh, Doctor Manhattan a little bit? An interesting interesting character. Yes, he is naked. We get to see his little, his, uh, well, little, depends on his size. Size yes. is variable with Dr. Manhattan. His penis, his blue penis. Well, in my defense, the, my, my first impression was on a movie screen. So there's, there's, there's magnifying effects. Well, sure. <laughs> I, I, we can talk about the, whether that was CGI or not for poor old Billy Crudup. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was actually reading up on, uh, on some of the Wikipedia stuff and, uh, I found it interesting that, uh, Gibbons was concerned about, actually showing the full frontal with the penis uh, because, you know, I, well, I, he, he, he deliberately makes it small to make it seem like more of classical sculpture. That is not the approach they took in the movies. <laughs> he, he's worried about that, but there are boobs like every other frame. <laughs> Interesting double standard from the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> from the eighties. Have you seen comics recently? Or, or yeah, or ever. <laughs> Yeah, so so he is he is essentially omnipotent. Um, he yeah, other than if there was a pulse of tachyons, in which case he gets confused. But you know he he's seeing time in a different way from the rest of us. He's the only character in this in this story with actual superpowers, too, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And they're horrifying. They are horrifying, and well, and he changes. He changes, I mean, the balance of power in the world. It really is. I mean, there's that line about the Superman is real and he's American. I mean, this is this is a take on 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 Superman in a way, which is if there was a guy who appeared who had these incredible powers and he was uh, an American, would that not change the balance of power? And Moore takes it all the way. He says, then we sent him to Vietnam. You know, we we didn't we didn't say, oh, well, this is he's going to work for the good of humanity. It was like, no. He's going to do what we want him to do. So, you know, it, I, I always I always thought that was a really um, strange and interesting character to have walking among all the other characters in this doctor. Because he is he, he is, uh, for the most part, almost a cipher. And the back material reveals that the original quote was actually God exists and he's American, yeah. which which makes <laughs> him even more horrifying. <laughs> I like how I like how they write him out. Basically, I think I think there's no other way it could have ended than with him saying, "Screw you, humanity! I'm off to something that's worth my my time and my talents." Right, but he's got the that perspective at the end, which is which is like the line of the uh, the line of the book, right? Nothing ever ends, Adrian. Yeah. Which is it's so true. We've we've taken this entire plot, and then it's so obvious. For, and of course, it's actually he's Ozymandias, right? <laughs> and the whole idea there is the Shelley poem about the crumbled empire that used to be there. And he's taken this as this incredible monument to his greatness. And, and uh, Dr. Manhattan, the guy with the eternal perspective lays down the, uh, lays down the view that this is not the, you know, this is not the end of the story because there aren't such things as ends of stories that just doesn't happen. Um, but 
a, a couple was it a couple issues earlier the sweetest thing in here proving that alan moore is actually a softie at heart uh, one of my favorite things about dr manhattan is the thing that is the thing that convinces him uh that he can intervene which is the, the sort of the simple story that is the story of every human life, which is that, you know, who could have predicted that what would have happened, you know, and which was with Blake and Laurie's mother to create him and uh, to create her and the, uh, the, the, you know, sperm, the one sperm that fertilized the one egg and this chain that goes back through every parent throughout human history. And, you know, Alan Moore, as as uh, cynical a guy as he can often be, is really saying there that, you know, every human being is a miracle. Every human being is kind of an amazing uh, thermodynamic, you know, miracle that that it, that one slight change and you would not exist. It, it, it's, you know, the, and I, I think that's uh, kind of an interesting, almost happy thing to find in the midst of the bleakness of this of this story. Although it struck me reading it this time that it's it seemed a little odd that he hadn't picked up on that before until Lori told her her story about her own lineage. He's focused on his blue business, his things. And- well, no, he, he spends all this time on Mars focused on the chaotic landscape as he's you know shaping his glass castle. It it's it just seems a bit odd that having spent as much time as he did on Earth and in the presence of of Lori that he had not got that connection before until. You know, at the crucial moment in uh, chapter seven or whatever it is. They're tachyons. He was distracted. Or you could, I mean, perhaps it's, I mean, the kind of the arc that Dr. Manhattan goes through is that he kind of loses more and more touch with humanity and and the understanding for even the people around him um, until perhaps then he reaches this point where he sees them as, you know, not just these ants, but these kind of miraculous um, combinations of, of, of fascinating ants. Yes, fascinating ants that are exactly the you know the way they are. And Lori's the only one he's got any any connection with at all left at that point. And so her the the facts of her birth are the thing that 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 you know finally make him snap out of it a little bit and at least realize that that even if he's way above humans, that humans do have some sort of relevance. Let me throw this at you. This is this is from uh, Grant Morrison's Super Gods. And he has a longish section on, on Watchmen, in which he says, The god of Watchmen was far from shy. He liked to muscle his way onto every panel, every line. He strutted into view with his blue Wheeler. on proud display. <laughs> it always comes back to the... <laughs> <laughs> and everywhere you looked, the watchmaker was on hand to present his glittering structure for our approval and awe. Just as Manhattan erected his own flawless crystal logic machine to lay out... Uh, to lay out the law to a distraught lorry in this maddeningly intricate engine of a story. The god of Watchmen could not hide and begged for our attention at every page turn. He was a jealous maker who refused to allow any of his creations to be smarter than he was, so the pacifist genius became a genocidal idiot. The confident, trained psychiatrist was reduced to a gibbering wreck by their darkness in the soul of his patient. The detective stumbled through the plot to their doom, and even the more or less divine superhuman was shown to be emotionally retarded and ineffectual. It was as if God had little more than contempt for his creations and gave them no opportunity to to transcend the limits he'd set for them. Now, at first, you kind of might think that he was talking about Manhattan there, but he's actually talking about more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that's that's really interesting. I mean, it is 
this is this is the this is the story right is the, everybody is is completely ineffectual and you know i i i guess i, I it's worth asking the question then which is how, you know how do you guys read as as great and intricate and interesting as this work is you know what is it what is its meaning to you does it, it, it how how does it uh, you know what meaning does it have for you beyond just being interesting and and carefully constructed and having an impact on the genre that it's in. I thought the lesson of Washington was that nothing matters. Uh, <laughs> I kid. Um, that's that's what I took. Nothing in yeah. The lesson I I took was that comic books aren't any good, <laughs> except for Watchmen, <laughs> and that I should just give up. Give up, everyone. Give up. The lesson is that comics can tell really great stories. Well, Moore didn't really set out to to uh, produce a meaning, as far as as far as what I've read. He he wanted to uh, you know take the comic medium somewhere new. Well, and and maybe blow up superhero the superhero trappings along the way, right? Tell a what if story. The germ of his idea was he thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if he took these existing Charlton characters right. and 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 threw them into a realistic setting. Uh, you know, any meaning that arose out of that, it, I think, is almost entirely coincidental. Nothing ever ends, Steve. Well, there is that. Maybe that's our lesson. Or maybe the lesson is that there's nothing new under <laughs> no. the sun. Well, it isn't all that much. I, you know, and and this is kind of, and this is kind of why, for me, the work, um, you know, as as much as it meant to me, it meant more to me when I was 16, and maybe when I was in my 20s than it does now that I'm 40. And it's, it's one of those books that, it, you know, it's, it's, you read it and, I, you know, you will never forget the first time you read a story like this. You know, I, I, I remember vividly, uh, you know, going over that, the, the first, just the first few issues, I, I was just completely engrossed and captivated and I, and, uh, and, you know, it, 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 it just blows your mind, right? I mean, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're a teenager and this is, this is exciting and new. But over time, um, you know, I read, it, I read it again carefully right before the movie came out. And the, the, the one, the, the, the great impression that I was left with was this is really kind of a relic of, of the 80s. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is kind of hokey and and maybe not so as smart as I remember it being. And I think that just comes with with time and and experience and reading and and your perspective on things changes. But um, so for me, I, I I'm kind of ambivalent about the book now. I I, I you know, 20 years ago, I, I I was much more passionate about it, and I and I I. I I loved it, and now I think my ardor has has cooled greatly. Ben, would you th- would you say that this book has a real Cold War sensibility to it? Oh yeah, yeah. That's I one mean, of the things that stands out for me when when I do the rereading is just just this real polarity and this real sense that oh both sides will always be as they are, and it completely dismisses the idea that something could happen as did happen in real life in 1989 going into the 90s. Something other than Armageddon, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and and so there, there's a there's a naivete about the book, um, and so you know to read it now is to say, well, it's not quite as sophisticated as as I once thought, and and so 
Well, you know, Ben, when, when you hit your 40s, the ardor is the first thing to go. <laughs> uh, brother, it went like, well, anyway, I don't want to get into that. I, I think, I don't know about sophistication. I guess what I would say is that is that part of the appeal of it is that it is, that this is a, the story is an act of rebellion, I think. It, it is, it is all... And if you're reading it when you're 16, man, that is the perfect time for it because it, it's all those comic books that you loved as a kid and that you're now getting in the mail once a month, right? I mean, for me, that yeah. was exactly what it was. They are um, – they, 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 they don't bear any resemblance to reality. They don't work logically. That's not how it would be. We are going to use this medium to destroy all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the conventions that you've – that, that, that they've had that all of these beliefs that you've had about it and, and as as an act of rebellion as kind of a bomb placed in this in this genre yeah. that i had been reading since i was five years old it was incredibly effective and the fact is not only was that a bomb from 1987 but uh it changed the medium and the world has moved on so what we're left with is uh you know that it was influential and that it's got a kind of a clever plot, although even there, the time sequence stuff has been beaten to death by modern narrative techniques, right? I mean, Quentin Tarantino uh, did, you know, made Pulp Fiction with with slices of of time out of order, and every TV show and movie since then has has done that. And so, even the Doctor Manhattan stuff, where it's so cool that he views time non linearly, it's like, yeah. It, it, everybody we got we got it right so it makes it very difficult to look at that and so in some ways the the stuff that i i discover when i reread it is not so much about the message or the meaning or the the plot even as much as uh the detail in the world and for that i, I we've been talking about alan moore a whole lot but for that i i give a whole lot of credit to dave gibbons who who the detail in the work, especially if you look at the absolute collection um, is really kind of amazing and, and, and viewed on purely on that level. I think this is a, this is an amazing work. I think Moore himself even said that he was discovering things, you know, months <laughs> later that he didn't, he had no idea were there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to give, even if you, some of that stuff has lost its power over time and it is much more a, uh, something you know a relic of 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 the 80s in some ways even though it was incredibly influential still some of that some of that work that uh the gibbons did is amazing and the absolute also we should say john higgins the original colorist recolored it because the color technology in the 80s was apparently really terrible there's actually a great uh story about about that i think i think maybe in the absolute edition about how he had to recolor it digitally and it's uh that's the version that's used on the um on the regular uh, trade editions now is also using that special recolored and it, they look much better. So the, a shout out to the colorist, but also just to Dave Gibbons, the artist, because that, there's some amazing work in in the details of every panel of this of this book. Actually, I'm really really glad you brought up John Higgins because I've I've always felt it was a bit of a shame that he didn't get an equal credit with uh, with Gibbons and Moore. Um, because his color work is just, it's a major, major part of what makes Watchmen great for me. One of the nice things about the recolor that they did for the Absolute that is now the definitive version is, um, I think that I think that Moore and Gibbons basically said, um, give Higgins our money. <laughs> and so they, they paid him and he gave him a, you know, a share or gave him all the money. I'm not sure, but he, he ba- or maybe he got Moore's share, but basically they, he recolored it. 
um, using some modern techniques where he could he there was stuff that technically he couldn't do in 86 and 87 that he was able to do and, and it looks great and he actually got paid because apparently he got paid basically nothing for this being involved in wow. this and uh so it's actually a really cool story and there's a book called watching the watchmen that came out about the same time as the absolute that's like a big coffee table book that's got lots of sketches and notes and some of alan moore's script and that's for anybody who who loves this story or who has spent you know 20 years living with it um that's uh that's worth checking out too because there's a lot of great um beautiful detail in that and and the story about how it all came together we should talk about the movie briefly at least Lisa can get in her kicks, um, but I wanted to start. <laughs> I wanted to start with Ben just to, to carry on with what you were saying before. Um, we said on a on a very early incomparable podcast we were talking about Watchmen briefly, and Ben, you you made the provocative <laughs> statement that um, the movie. You know, we always say things like, "Well, you know, the book is still there; it's not changing just because of the movie." And you actually made the point that um, that the movie diminished your appreciation of the book. Yeah, yeah. So, like I said a couple of minutes ago, I, I reread the book before I saw the movie because I wanted to. You know, you go want to be ready. Yeah, and you go in with the <laughs> idea that the book is always better than the movie, and um, you you can understand after seeing the movie why more thought. It, it couldn't be filmed and I, and, and probably not in the way that you might think. I, I think it, it, because it, it, in some ways it's just, it, it's just ridiculous on, on screen. And maybe, <laughs> maybe it's because of the, of the way, you know, maybe blame it on the director or whatever, but. Um, oh, that's the start. That's just the start <laughs> in the, in the role of blame. <laughs> um, it, that, that movie, you know, there, there, in the past 10 years, there have been two movies that I've seen that have thrown me into a week-long depression. Um, <laughs> the Phantom Menace was one, and Watchmen was the other one. But but the problem is that when when you see this stuff act, the stuff that that that's on the page that you know that you've you, you've you've studied that you've you know uh, you've gotten the the ink on your on your fingers reading so much, uh, and you go back uh, and, and then you actually see it interpreted and put on the screen. And you realize um, just how kind of dumb Veidt's whole scheme really is. Yeah. And then you kind of think, Jesus, this is this is it. This is it. And so, yeah. Well, and the worst is the dialogue. I mean, what what looks good on the page sounds unbelievably stilted when it comes out of people's mouths. Yeah, and and um, no, so it 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 um. It, it, and because I think, you know, you have now you have you have Rorschach's voice. Well, I always imagined his voice being something very different from what Jackie Earl Haley did, and he is actually pretty good in the movie. But yeah. but now it's it's Jackie Earl Haley's voice when you <laughs> when you look at the book, and um, and then of course there are other problems with the book, and the biggest is that uh, that. Uh, um, Lori gets the line of the of the book. Yeah, John told me something once when we were eating tacos. So I don't know. <laughs> I, you know nothing ever changes. <laughs> see you. See you later. I, you know. Yeah, John, uh, I've I've reached the end of my taco. Nothing ever ends, Lori. Yeah. Oh, here you got a new taco. <laughs> that that said, it's bottomless taco night. What are you talking about? Nothing ever ends on taco Taco Charlie's Taco Tuesday. <laughs> that, that said. Um, making, 
the 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 most the, the significant change that Snyder made in in you know translating it from book to screen, which was basically blaming the whole thing on Doctor Manhattan. Fixing that makes the end, a, yeah. That that makes a lot more sense than a, a giant octopus. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. And good night. You know what though? As as dopey as all the rest of it seems when put up on the screen, I don't think the giant octopus would come off that poorly. <laughs> Lisa, have your kicks. Go for it. <laughs> bam! 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 First of all, if you're ever going to watch the movie, leave after the credits because the credits are the best part of that movie. Credits are great. Mm-hmm. Oh my mm. gosh, I had such high expectations after watching that sequence because that sequence has such a distinct visual style and it provides this, it, it really puts you in a frame of mind where you understand the arc of superhero history as as takes place in this universe and it's got a very, it, it sucks you into this little bubble and you're kind of expecting the whole movie to, to do that. It's the only bit of adaptation you could argue other than changing the yeah. plot at the end in the movie is that that's where the filmmakers actually sat down and thought we need to not be slavish. How can we use this medium to tell a story quickly, effectively yeah. and evocatively? And then you go from that to something that is big and dumb and wet and loud and on fire and well, and is using every panel as the mm. as the storyboards, and is using every uh, dialogue bubble as the dialogue. And this is where I don't think you should. Uh, this is where I think when you're doing an adaptation, you really need to 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 stress ad- adapt as as, yes. as 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 the as the syllable to keep in mind for for any and all creative endeavor, because you you absolutely cannot transpose something that that plays to the strengths of one medium into a completely different medium without considering the 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 adaptees individual strengths um my biggest complaint about this movie however is that they really really miscast a lot of the roles and um i will contend until i'm old and senile and and adrian and laurie most particularly i think oh yeah oh yeah no um adrian should have been played by tom cruise or somebody who is tom cruise like oh he's so effete it's horrible with his crazy german ish accent thing yeah but he's he's like a euro weenie you know he's just oh hey Now's now's the time on Sprockets when we dance. He has that kind of you know, no flouncy. And in the book, the thing that the thing that makes is so creepy about Adrian in the book is he tries so hard to be personable and he tries so hard to be this charming, approachable Superman. All time, all time and space aside, young Robert Redford is the is Adrian, right? I mean, he is yeah. friendly yeah. and and attractive, and he's your buddy, and he's, and he's and brilliant. He's Mr. And Death Roll from uh, Twilight Zone. Going to kill you. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No, I still think Tom Cruise because Tom, yeah, yeah. That, that is that is kind of what Tom Cruise has going for him is he's, hey, I'm a star and I'm approachable and you see me palling around with people and there is something about him that still sets your teeth on edge I and, will and kill you. your hackles. And I totally think it's, that's that, just Xenu. <laughs> <laughs> I totally think that would have worked for this movie. And yeah. um, I think he was actually interested. And then Lori, they just cast somebody who looked good and couldn't yeah. act. No. Sadly, she fit the suit. And that, that character deserved better. Right. Well, not only do the character deserve better, they they did the same thing they do every time they cast any woman superhero, which is they go for somebody who will fill out a leotard without looking yep. offensive, as opposed to you know, like a mixed martial arts fighter or some or somebody who would be built like an actual professional who uses her body to kill people. But it goes back to the slavish devotion to the source material, right? They needed yeah. to get somebody who looked like Lori, so that's yeah. what they did. Unfortunately, they don't make them that look like Lori but can act. Apparently, uh, no. No, well, and there's yes. that realism Apparently, thing. There aren't enough actresses in Hollywood, I guess. <laughs> well, there, there's the the whole realism of comics that comes into question too, which is which is if you're a tough beating up you know beating up crooks crime fighter, would you wear an outfit like that, and no. would you look like that? And chances no, no, are no. neither of those things is is true. I I think I wrote at the time. I actually wrote a I, I found it the other day a blog post about um, 
after I'd seen this movie, which I actually saw with Lisa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a, we saw it with Phil, who was with, completely ignorant of... <laughs> baffled. Of, of, <laughs> well, Phil's never read it, and, and he refused to read it beforehand. He said, I didn't want to read it. I just want to go in and assess it as a movie. Yeah. That, that, how'd, that, how'd that work out for him? <laughs> you know, I'm kind of grateful, actually. Yeah. Um, so, so my feeling about it is that it's actually not that different, even though I, I spin it a little more positively than you and Ben. I, I think it, we're not that far off. My feeling is, with the exception of some casting, I think it's about as good as a move, an adaptation of Watchmen could probably be. At least in the two to three hour movie format. Right, right. Only in the sense, and and basically that means I'm agreeing with Ben, that I'm not sure it, if, I, I think this is about what you could do if you wanted to do it. And look, it, you know, judge it as it is. It kind of doesn't work. But they, I'm not sure they could have made it work much better. I, to your point, Steve. I mean, every anybody who knows me knows I've said this a million times, which is uh, adapting this as twelve a twelve episode series for HBO maybe would have worked. Yes. Yes. At, at, yes. With those individual chapter breaks back, but the fact is, economically, you know, they just they don't they don't usually do that anymore, unless you're George R. R. Martin, I guess. But um, so so instead they made a two hour movie out of it and and. And it's it's you know it looks good, hmm. and it's very slavishly devoted to the source material and yeah. yeah, with the exception of the sex scene, which is expanded from the source material. Oh, and it's terrible and it's unwatchable. is is one of the least sexy sex scenes in any movie ever. They really should. They should really should couple that with abstinence only education in the <laughs> Topic. Everybody, read your Watchmen, and now we'll watch this movie. And oh God, no, no, never! Don't even, don't even don't even have them read Watchmen. Just just watch that one scene. Yeah. And then this is what awaits you. Every kid's no. That's right. No. no. <laughs> Back so, to the internet with me. So I'm our play words, words with friends. I actually genuinely enjoyed the movie. I know that's uh, that's that's an unusual opinion, but as you may have gathered from past <laughs> podcast episodes, I'm a very simple man, and to me, just just the fact that I was I, I was seeing these characters that I grew up with and loved put up on the screen by somebody who clearly loved them just as much, like marionettes. <laughs> no, there, there's something to that. I've seen it. I've seen it twice, and we'll see it again. So I don't I don't hate it. I just. You know, I, I I I would say I'm deeply ambivalent because I appreciate the a lot of the work that went into it, and I feel like right. it was faithful. And yet, I I also look at it and think, really, I, you know, I just kind of feel like, what's the point? Yeah. Well, look, it it wasn't League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> oh, God, I've never seen that, and I don't think I want. That's a ringing it's no the spirit, That's for sure. <laughs> No, but really, it, it it was about as good as you could get with about with a two to three hour adaptation. I mean, the, my major beefs with, with the film some casting was issues with the ca- yeah uh, the casting was was pretty bad. Um, my, my biggest beef was I didn't think this was something that you could show to a Watchmen virgin and expect them to have any idea what the heck was going on. And I, and I think that the director's cut on DVD I think mostly solves that problem. So I mean, I I really wanted to to use it as an opportunity to to show it to friends of mine who would never who would never give the the trade paperback a shot, and and kind of use it as an as an opening to uh, get them into Watchmen and discuss it. But uh, it really was useless on it, that front. Yeah, I, I saw it with a group of friends who were uh, not comics readers but familiar with comics movies, and to them they just they didn't really see the point. Right? It, it, to them it was sure. You know, inferior compared to the Dark Knight or, or, or other things like that. Um, 
which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I right. DC did these motion comics versions of it that I actually thought were better <laughs> in that, in that they were trying to be faithful to the, uh, exactly faithful to the source material and Gibbons actually drew some extra stuff for them. And, uh, you know, that's what I showed to my wife who is not a comic books reader. And, and I, I thought that, I thought that went okay, over okay with her. I thought that that was m- kind of a more effective way to tell that story and let it unwind in, you know, basically 12, 45 minute TV episodes using the original artwork with a, basically a narrator. Um, whereas the movie, it is all, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't judge it as as somebody who hasn't read the book, right? So I, it may make absolutely no sense to them. I, I wouldn't surprise me. Right. And then my, my other big beef was that it's just too completely obvious from the start that uh, Adrian Veidt is, is the guy behind oh, the plot. I mean, just that it, accent. he just drips guilt from scene one <laughs> yeah. to the end. He drips puppet master vibes. Yeah, and I did not get that when reading the book, right? I mean, when reading the story in the in the beginning, you know, that, that was... That was a that was a twist that worked for right. me. Mm-hmm. Although reading the book this time uh, and trying to t- trying to really catch on to all of the clues and hints, I can't believe I had not figured it I out know. by the time it was actually revealed. I know <laughs> because they keep dropping the. In our defense, we were all young teenagers. That's true, yeah. but I mean they keep dropping things like you know pyramid deliveries, and they've gone through how he has all the Egyptian stuff in his. Uh, yeah, but you don't you don't even notice a lot of that stuff. It's well balanced. It feels clever without being obvious. Yeah, yeah. It it doesn't. It's not one of those huh, right? Kind of like plot twist that comes out of nowhere. But uh, wait, what? Allison Janney's his mom? I don't get it. <laughs> what? <laughs> um. So so my last uh topic is the fact that they're making prequels in comic form yeah prepare to be depressed again ben For, saturday yeah. morning watchmen oh my god watchmen watchmen baby <laughs> watchmen babies are back yeah have you guys seen the saturday morning watchmen clip that somebody put up on youtube yeah. yes, yes. Oh, yeah it's awesome actually the the guy who put that together was uh harry partridge who is the son of xtc frontman andy partridge <laughs> interesting little <laughs> wow. bit of trivia there wow so so Obviously, all the comic book geeks are in a in an uproar about this because, and there there was a really interesting debate about it. Um, as Ben pointed out, Watchmen itself was originally kind of started as a use of these Charlton comic book characters. I think were Steve not pointed that out. Created. Oh, okay. Full credit to Steve, as Ray pointed out. Uh, <laughs> Ray is not with us anymore. So the the so they made they're making these prequels, and and I don't I don't know what to think. Well, here's here's my view on that. Um, when they collect them all into you know a giant omnibus, I'll, which they will, which they will, eight different ways to Sunday. I will go to the Barnes and Noble, assuming the Barnes and Noble is still in business, right? And assuming the shrink wrap has been ripped off one of the copies, I will flip <laughs> through it, and if it attracts me, then I'll buy it. But otherwise, otherwise, they can go straight to the devil. Full, full credit to DC. They they are getting, uh, um, by and large, uh, well thought of writers and artists mm-hmm. to do this, the, and, and they're not, and, and they're trying to take care with it. And it, it's kind of nice that they waited, whatever twenty five years to to do it and give it some room to breathe. At the same time, you know, it is they own the copyright on it, and uh, you know they're they're not making a sequel, right? They're they're filling in bits of the backstory of these characters and oh, it, such a mistake even if they're awful well yeah maybe so but even if they're awful 
it doesn't I, i'll go, again say it doesn't change the original although ben has proven me wrong on that point already lisa you know ter- terrible idea yes i i think i think it's a terrible idea just because i think that one of the reasons watchmen works is because the characters we know right now all we know about them is is what serves the story um, and frankly, I don't want to find out what makes the comedian tick. I don't need to know mm. what traumatic event happened in his past that makes him a completely uh, pragmatic nihilist. I don't want to know about how hard it was for Rorschach to go through junior high without ever getting a valentine. <laughs> um, or, or whatever the hell else they're going to do to to explain the, the, the kinks in these people's systems. Um, it's how Rorschach bought his first trench coat. <laughs> He walked into Brooks Brothers and they laughed him out of the store. Uh, and then he I went back and set it on fire. The, the thing is, is I don't because when these kind of prequel stories happen, it's typically and there's going to be wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There'll be there'll be weird little callbacks or, or serendipitous things that that imply that these characters paths have always been meant to cross because, you know, some writers going to throw that in because I sure. think they're clever. And, oh, God, it'll be annoying too. Yeah. smiley faces and clocks everywhere. Yeah, or or it's going to be, you know, um, Dreiberg walks down the street and accidentally bumps Rorschach in the shoulder and, oh, he doesn't realize who he hit, but we know. And Hey, they're, they're doing a Max Shea showing down at the art gallery. No, no, I'm not interested in that art stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's going to be that kind of it's it's going to be a combination of oh oh look there are in jokes to satisfy the fanboys and fangirls and oh we get to find out what made these people what they are and I don't want to know what made them what they are I don't care I don't think it's I I don't think it will serve the original story I don't think it will amplify it I don't think it'll make it better and I don't think it needs to be told. So you're not even if the shrink wrap is is ripped off you're not going to look at the uh, no. At- I only end up regretting it every time I've done this in comics where where, where they go back and and they backfill in stories and secret origins and so on and so forth. No origin is ever as good as what I'm going to come up with in my head. So I I just end up regretting it. I'm going to buy I'm going to ignore it. Pretend it didn't exist. Yeah. Midichlorians and, uh, Oh, do do not want. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I was so much happier with the star Wars universe before I walked into Phantom Menace. You're going to depress Ben. Again, uh, it's too late. It's too late. Most depressing podcast ever. At, at one point, I think that uh, before <laughs> before DC allegedly screwed uh, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons out of the rights to the the characters, I think that there was some talk of them doing a uh, a set of prequels based on the Minutemen, and that I think would have worked because it would not have been an attempt to you know fill in backstories and and. Uh, you know, could have been kind of an independent work. And there is a Minutemen prequel mini series. That is one of them they're doing, I think. Isn't that it? might not be horrible because it, well, is, as long as they steer clear of too many of the cutesy uh, associations. Right. Which, yeah. Can they but, Yeah, that? I mean, I, I, I'm in the same boat as Lisa. I don't want these backstories filled in. In fact, I think one of the reasons that Watchmen works so well for so many different people is that more deliberately avoided making really overt moral judgments on the characters and uh and kind of left them a, a blank slate that you as the reader could uh could sort of draw your own conclusions with and i think the more that you fill in the gaps on these characters the less that's going to that's yeah. going to exist yeah i i i i agree i mean i i with ben i i there may be they may do good work these may be good writers and good artists and they may it might be interesting to see their interpretations of these characters but on the other level one of the ways that watchmen works is that you fill in 
the gaps. And I, I don't think people talk about that in, in fiction enough that, that, um, even as an audience, you have an imagination that can go at work and the implications, these little bits that are implied go so far because the creators know that the audience is going to fill in the gaps in a way that pleases them. Whereas if they made it specific, it it would be much di- more difficult. And that's why I'm, I'm ambivalent about the uh, these these prequels is that they may be good on their own. I, I don't really like necessarily what they stand for in terms of playing really playing with the memory of the thing that I've got in my head, which yeah. is Watchmen as a standalone. Right. And, and, and really in comics, a very rare thing, a complete standalone work where these characters, you read this, that's it. Yeah. And that's going to be that's going to be done. Well, here's the th- here's let me make one last point about that. Do do we really need to see you know the intricate details of how Silk Spectre and her lover are knocked <laughs> off? And and worse than that, someone I guarantee you, they're going to tell us what happened to um, Hooded Justice. Hooded Justice. They're going to show Blake killing Hooded Justice or whatever, which is one of those great mysteries. It's like right. Hooded Justice disappears. There's the implication that Blake might have been involved, but it is, it is just it is just out there. And yeah, that will probably be dealt with literally. So they Boo. can go to the devil. Boo-hiss. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but if Barnes & Noble's still in business, Ben, and the, and the shrink wrap is undone, You'll give it a peek. If this elaborate set of conditions is met. <laughs> That's right. The, the The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. You got to take a, a peek at the car crash as long as you're driving by. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, I think we've, uh, I think we've uh, kicked the, kicked, kicked the movie and kicked the prequels and talked about, about this, this, uh, this book enough for now. But um, this was great. And, and, I uh I I don't feel like uh somebody like Ben destroyed my childhood love like uh like John Syracuse did with Real Genius so that's good. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um that so that that's good. That, because 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 I I share some of Ben's feelings about it whereas John Syracuse is just wrong about Real Genius and that's all there is to it. And since he's not in here to defend himself that's kind of awesome. No, that's the best thing. It's just you know Boom. There it is. Anyway, so so it's been great talking Watchmen. It's been great talking comic books from the mid-1980s with all of you. Um, uh, so until uh, until our next episode, I would like to thank my guests. The, uh, the They are my own personal Minutemen. Uh, Steve Lutz, you, you can be – who would you – you can be uh, – I don't know. Hooded Justice. I, I, I don't know. You can be <laughs> – Good luck. I don't think it's going to end well for you, Steve Lutz. Thank you. I, I'm am okay with that, to be honest be with you. Good justice, and and uh, and it's been a pleasure, Jason, talking about a work of literature with it, you, it, which I can do in this case because it has pictures and stuff. It has pictures. Yeah, it's nice. It's like book club, except with pictures. Uh, be, right. Ben Boychuk, uh, thank you for being here, young comedian you. that and you are. N- nothing ever ends except for this bottle of wine that I finished just a minute ago. Excellent. It, it may refill itself if Dr. Manhattan is listening. Um, Lisa Schmeiser, thanks for being here. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. And thank you for not making any oh, Silk Spectre comments right no, now. No. <laughs> why would I do such a horrible, horrible thing? I'll do that when I edit the podcast later. Uh, 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 no. <laughs> I'll make it a prequel. Uh, and Tony Sindelar, thanks for coming. It was great to have you on the podcast again. It was great to be here. Uh-huh. I'm not trapped on this podcast with you. You're trapped on it. With me. <laughs> there we go. Good one. Finally, somebody made a good reference that everybody got. And, and, and now just, you know, 
pick something out of the crank file and run that. Run, run it how you like. Uh, until next time, for The Incomparable, I'm Jason Snell. Thanks for listening. Uh, I guess we've reached the end of this podcast. Ben? Yeah, um, yes, hello? Oh. <laughs> I said, I guess we've reached the end of this podcast. Oh, nothing I just... ever ends. <laughs> you people. I'm sorry, I've had 16 ounces of wine during the course of this recording. <laughs>